Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Strangers in Jerusalem YouTube channel and podcast, where we explore the Gospels and the Jesus traditions within their Jewish context. In this second video in our baptism, Jesus' baptism series, we will look at ancient Jewish immersion practices and the context of John the Baptist's immersion activity. So we're still going through these, trying to get closer to the account of Jesus' baptism. But in this video, we'll set the context so people know what the, what the historical and uh, theological and the ritual uh, motives are for immersing yourself. A lot of my students have questions about, you know, Jesus commanded baptism, but did Jews baptize? And what was John the Baptist doing? Why were people coming in? Why would Jesus go to him at that time, at that moment? So a lot of this is to clear that up, to make uh, more sense of it before moving on to the actual accounts of Jesus' baptism in the gospel. So follow me. Let's go to Jerusalem. So let's first look at maybe John the Baptist. Let's reverse it. I, I know in the intro part, I said we're going to look at the context of Jewish immersion, and then we'll look at John the Baptist. But uh, let's first look at John the Baptist, what he's doing, what, what it seems to be his concern and his role in all of this, uh, these activities. And then we'll zoom out and look, compare John the Baptist to what other people are doing and saying about the ancient Jewish ritual of immersion. The author of Mark indicates that people from the entire region sought out John for immersion. This is in Mark 1.5. So Mark states everyone came out. According to the various Gospels, John's, John the Baptist's following included not only just your regular countryside, like pedestrian Jews, but also Jews with political influence, including tax collectors. So for example, like in Luke 3.12, there's tax collectors there. Also in Matthew, you get Pharisees and Sadducees show up. In, in Matthew 3, 7. So there's many different types of people. There's soldiers there, tax collectors, and others. Josephus explained, here's our first century Jewish historian Josephus, he explained that John was popular with the crowds because he inspired them with his sermon. Josephus also wrote that many Jews attributed the destruction of Herod Antipas's army to divine punishment for killing John the Baptist. A lot of people don't realize that John shows up in Josephus and he's very well known. John the Baptist is very well known among Jews in the, the early first century. But what it seems that in Josephus, when, well, actually in the Gospels, when the crowds gather, John addresses them in Luke and Matthew as follows. Here's the language that shows up in those two Gospels. You brood of vipers. This is what John's saying to the, to the crowd. You brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Bear fruit worthy of repentance. Do not presume to say to yourself, we have Abraham as our ancestor. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. Even now the axe is lying at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So John here is saying that there needs to be more than just, just existing as a descendant of Abraham and being included in the house of Israel. That alone is not going to save you from the wrath, you know, being thrown into the fire. You actually have to have a repentant heart. Now, John's viper sermon is intriguing. The typical assumption is that John is criticizing his audience. But notice that in Luke... John the Baptist addresses not just the Pharisees and Sadducees, but he addresses the, he addresses the entire crowd who came out to be baptized by him. That's Luke 3, 7. In the other Gospels, like in Matthew, okay, it makes sense in a superficial level that John would turn to some of the leaders like Sadducees or Pharisees and blast them, call them vipers. But it doesn't make sense for him to do that in Luke, where he's addressing the entire crowd and then calling them vipers. 
it seems strange that John would do this, to, to verbally attack those who sought him out for immersion. In an attempt to explain John's seemingly strange use of language, one well-known evangelical scholar, uh, Craig Evans, he's written many, many books, uh, well-known evangelical scholar at Houston Baptist University, he claimed that because John was popular with the multitudes and a threat to Herod Antipas, quote, it is likely that John's harsh criticism was originally uttered against Israel's rulers rather than against the people themselves. Now, the question I have is, so Craig Evans says that this is a harsh criticism, but based on a closer reading of the text, John's sermon does not appear to have been a harsh criticism, but a planned speech relating to repentance and judgment, specifically intended for an audience eager to accept his baptism. Note that John's sermon is a chiasm. Now, a chiasm is a, an ancient literary structure which features a central salient theme. In this case, a teachable, repentant crowd. So in other words, all those who came out to be baptized by him, I'll put here upon the screen this little chiastic structure in Matthew 3. What a chiasm is, is it starts, it, it goes through the passage and makes certain claims, and then when you get to the middle of the passage, there's the, the core salient theme, and then the passage reverses itself in, in, in coming out. Out. So, for example, here you see in Matthew 3, 1 and 2, it mentions Herod, the Tetrarch of Galilee, John preached in all the region, and the next, impending judgment by fire. And then you get the middle statement in Matthew 3, 10 through 14, there's a repentant crowd who seeks John's counsel. And now that we're at the central part of this passage, the author of Matthew reverses itself, reverses himself coming out. So, then you talk again about impending judgment by fire, John's preaching to the people, and again, you mention Herod, the ruler. Hopefully, if, you can't, if you're getting this in a podcast, you can't really see that, but go to the YouTube version. So that's how we, we, we know that this structure, what John is doing, he's, he is addressing a crowd that specifically is there to repent, because they're asking John, a lot of the crowd are asking John how they can do this to best, uh, to best repent. Also, John's usage of the word viper in relation to repentance and imminent judgment parallels symbolic passages in Isaiah and Jeremiah. I'll put them up here on the screen. You have Isaiah 11, Isaiah 30, Isaiah 59, Jeremiah 46. John the Baptist may have used this powerful imagery to motivate those present to participate in the purity immersion after having repented, not as an act of repentance itself. In other words, simply existing as a literal descendant of Abraham would not save someone from being, quote, hewn down and cast into the fire. The Dead Sea sect, the Dead Sea movement, that group at Qumran, similarly condemned the practice of immersion without repentance. So here's what they say uh, in, in the Dead Sea Scrolls. None of the perverse men is to enter the purifying waters used by the men of holiness, by the, by the community, and so contact their purity. Indeed, it is impossible to be purified without first repenting of evil. So in the Dead Sea community, you have to repent first, then you go be immersed. Immersion is not itself an, an act of repentance. It's sort of the culmination, or it's after you've already gone through the process of repenting and all that that entails. So maybe an analogy or a comparison is that we might compare John's approach, his speech, to an, to an American evangelical pastor who calls his entire congregation sinners. Whosoever therefore shall be ashamed of me and of my words uh, in this adulterous and sinful generation of him also shall the Son of Man be ashamed. Right, we're all sinners. It's sort of a hellfire and brimstone, kind of a big motivating speech. It's not that he's calling his congregants names. It's not that he's criticizing them. He's just saying, we are all sinners. We are, we are lowly, and we need, we need God to, to help us, and we all need to repent. It seems like that is kind of a good comparison to what John is doing. He's motivating those, at least if you take Luke's account where he's addressing everybody, it seems like he's addressing them in, in, a, in a repentance. And then he's using language from Isaiah and Jeremiah 
And they use, there's some words like viper in those texts. So John's symbolic rhetoric is a call for repentance intended for those who came to him, not a harsh rebuke to critics. So it's important to understand that so we don't just read here again and then just lob attacks at ancient Jews, which we will talk about that also, anti-Semitism in the ancient world. We'll talk about that in another video. So now the question is, if the crowds came to John specifically for immersion, would it have been to join some new movement or to engage in a ritual for purity following repentance? It's probably the latter. It's not to join a new movement, but it's to engage in a ritual. And this is confirmed by Josephus. So here's what Josephus says in his book, Antiquities. John, John the Immerser, John the Baptist, was a good man and had exhorted the Jews to lead righteous lives, to practice justice towards their fellows and piety towards God. And so doing to join in baptism. In this view, this was a necessary preliminary for baptism, was to be acceptable to God. They must not employ it to gain pardon for whatever sins they had committed, but as a consecration of the body, implying that the soul was already thoroughly cleansed by the right by right behavior. So we, were, we talked about this a little bit before, where this is what the, the Qumran community, the people at the, in, near the Dead Sea, the Dead Sea sect, this is what they were saying also. You repent, and then you come to John to, be, to engage in uh, a purity ritual. That's sort of the last step in, in, in purity or repentance. Okay, so how do we understand these activities in relation to baptism today? In modern times, today, most Christians perform one-time immersions as uh, an initiation into a new group. So you're initiated into the body of Christ when you're, you're performing your baptism, a one-time event. This is an outward performance of a new birth and inclusion into the body of Christ. This is called proselyte baptism. Proselyte baptism, as we understand it today, was not customary among Jews in Jesus' day. There is no evidence that Jews in the early first century required people to submit to a once and for all immersion. No such practice is mentioned in the Hebrew Bible, the Dead Sea Scrolls, the writings of Philo, our first century Jewish philosopher. The writings of Josephus contain none of this, nor the earliest rabbinic literature. None of that body of literature suggests that people would, even Gentiles coming into the Jewish movement, would submit to a once and for all convert baptism. As for John's immersion, it seems that most scholars conclude that he did conf confer baptism on individuals only once. That's a, it seems like a lot of Christian scholars just sort of imply that in the commentaries. But note that neither the Gospels nor Josephus makes this claim in relation to John. Jews who came to John the Baptist, including Jesus, were not seeking to join a new Jewish movement by undergoing a one-time immersion. For, for, for early Jews, first century Jews, immersion was performed periodically. This is, this is a frequent ritual. It seemed to be connected to both purity and repentance, as we've already discussed. The Hebrew Bible codified injunctions for a priest to immerse himself in water after becoming ritually pure. This is sort of the origin of this practice that then later developed. So it, were the, it was the priests that would immerse themselves. They wouldn't have somebody else do it. They would do it themselves after becoming ritually impure. Later prophets used the water cleansing imagery in association with repentance and the renewal of Israel. So now we have a, a scenario, or um, I guess evidence in the Hebrew Bible, where priests immerse themselves, and now the prophets using water cleansing imagery in relation to all of Israel. And then when you get even closer to, to Jesus' day, in the second century BC, or BCE, immersion rituals expanded to include not just priests, but perhaps a large segment of the population. Lots and lots of people were now going to these immersion pools, called mikvah, or mikvahot in the plural, to purify themselves. In the archaeological record, in the few generations preceding Jesus, we see that these use of full-body tubs, or a mikvah, exploded all over Judea and Galilee. Archaeologists have found remains of these tubs at the temple, at the ruins of synagogues. They found them in big cities and, and also in small towns, 
in both wealthy and poor homes all over the place. In addition to all that, there are, there's accounts of several different desert washers, as we're calling them. There's John the Baptist as a, as a desert washer. He goes out in the wilderness to perform these immersions, but there's others. Josephus' teacher, Bannus, was also one who, who baptized frequently for purification. There's also the Essenes, this, the, uh, the Essene group, also immersed themselves frequently because of purity. The priestly sect at Qumran, near the Dead Sea, whether these were Essenes or some sort of break-off Sadducean group, they also practiced similar rituals, and the activities of John the Baptist kind of fit this pattern. So what this tells us is that John the Baptist was not, his activities, his ritual was not new or revolutionary, but it fit within the first century Jewish setting. One possible rationale for this expansion of immersion rituals in the first and second centuries BC is that God's spirit, Jews understood that God's spirit is poured out upon his people if they are pure. They're poured out upon all of Israel. This is in Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27. Now the way to purity, if they take the earlier Israelite ideal, the way to purity is through the cleansing of the soul by repentance that culminates in a purity immersion. A few notable first century Jews outside, well, first and second century Jews, outside of the New Testament, so namely Rabbi Akiva and Josephus, also associated immersion with repentance. Ideally, for, for many first century Jews, the process of repentance included both an inward change of heart and an outward manifestation of immersion. When Jews approached John to be immersed, they did so as an act of repentance, it says in Acts 19, 3-4. John's message of repentance fit with the expanded phenomenon of immersion during this period. John's concern, however, as revealed in his Viper sermon in Matthew 3 and Luke 3, was that too many people were relying on immersion rituals without having a broken and contrite heart. That's the language we find in Psalm 51, Psalm 34, Isaiah 57. These, some of these places we, we find it over and over in Jewish literature where the writings suggest that a person who's repenting has to have a contrite heart. For centuries, Christians have portrayed Judaism and Jews as a, a highly legalistic, religion that's just focused on a bunch of, of deeds and they were you know devoid of the heart and compassion and repentance and that's just not the case the ideal in ancient judaism is is, is the same today among christians to do things for the right reason to have it's an inward motive love of god love of fellow man you know uh, this sort of thing a contrite heart so for for john the baptist it seemed that some had missed the point and this is often the case with any group of people who performs a ritual frequently you perform the ritual it becomes a, it becomes a habit becomes habitual, and you, you always run the risk of just going through the motions and not letting it sink in, into your soul. So that's what John the Baptist is talking about. Similar to John, the Dead Sea sect at Qumran condemned a reliance on immersion without a repentant heart. Here's a passage I'll, I'll put up on the screen. This is from a text that is written by the Dead Sea community, the Dead Sea Scrolls uh, community. This is written for all the members of the community regarding repentance. So note, note the similarities with John's overall focus on repentance. Quote, ceremonies of atonement cannot restore his innocence neither cultic waters his purity. He cannot be sanctified by baptism in oceans and rivers, nor purified by mere ritual bathing. Through an upright and humble attitude, his sin may be covered. And by humbling himself before all God's laws, his flesh can be made clean. Only thus can he really receive the purifying, the purifying waters and be purged by the cleansing flow. To be sure, the immersion ritual does not seem to be tied exclusively to the act of repentance, or even primarily to the act of repentance, but more so to purity which at times requires repentance prior to the purity immersion. So in other words, a penitent state must be achieved before performing the, the purity ritual immersion, according to, to many of these quotes that we've seen. 
Okay, that's all for this video. That gives us a solid context of immersion ritual at the time of Jesus and then what John the Baptist was doing, what his concern was. And so in the, in the next couple of videos, we'll dive into Jesus, why he, was, why he would go to John the Baptist, what his immersion was all about, and we'll look at that. But uh, thanks for watching. Uh, make sure you subscribe to the, the YouTube channel and also uh, check out the other, the, the other videos and my recently published book called A Stranger in Jerusalem, Seeing Jesus as a Jew. You'll get many details in there on this topic and other related topics. Thank you.